According to the National Park Service statistics, 330 deaths occur each year on the 85 million acres of the United States' 423 park sites. It's not uncommon for people to get lost when hiking. People sometimes become disoriented or get injured. But when the dismembered bodies of four people were found in parks in the southern United States in late 2007 to early 2008, it became clear that that wasn't the case. This is the story of Gary Hilton, also known as the National Park Serial Killer. I'm Ashton, and welcome to The Haunted Corner. everyone. Welcome back to The Haunted Corner. Today we're diving into a well-known case, a serial killer. You ever wake up in the middle of the night realizing you forgot to do something or thinking about like where your birth certificate is because you haven't seen it in a while? Well, that was me last week. I woke up at three o'clock a.m., the witching hour, also my anxiety hour, and I realized that I haven't covered a serial killer on the podcast yet. I have like a list of episodes and topics that I want to cover, but, and there's lots of serial killers on there. I just realized that I hadn't covered one yet. So here we are. So Gary Michael Hilton, AKA the National Park Serial Killer, AKA this douche. This guy sucks y'all. And there's a lot to this case. So let's get into it. We're going to start with some background information on Gary Hilton. He was born on November 26, 1946 in Atlanta, Georgia. His parents divorced when he was around eight years old, and he moved with his mother to Florida, where she met and married a man who became his stepfather. According to reports, Gary suffered a frontal lobe injury as a child when a Murphy bed fell on him. So that's not good. And... Any brain injuries, especially in childhood, red flag. But Gary was really smart. He had a very high IQ and got good grades in school. When he was 14, he actually shot and injured his stepfather with a shotgun. Now, he was possibly protecting his mother from his stepfather, but his stepfather survived and didn't even press charges against Gary. So there's that. At 17 years old, Gary enlisted in the army and was stationed in West Germany as part of the Davy Crockett platoon, which sounds like a group of young boys naming their club after something, you know, like the He-Man Woman Haters Club. Gary became a paratrooper. He enjoyed flying planes. He went to school to become a pilot, but never followed through with it. Because in 1967, he experienced a schizophrenic episode and was honorably discharged. And this is where things take a turn for Gary. He was married and divorced three times. 
He had also been arrested for drunk driving, carrying a gun without a license, drug possession, and 21 counts of solicitation. And his crimes were about to escalate. Now, this one's going to break your heart. John and Irene Bryant, who were 80 and 84 years old, respectively, had been married for 58 years. Irene, the first in her family to attend college, took her doctorate from Washington State College and opened a veterinary practice concentrating on large animals, becoming one of the first woman vets in Montana. That's where the couple met and married, often going for hikes on their dates. Jack Bryant, also known as John, reportedly had a moral compass so strong he consistently underbilled his small upstate New York village for his work as the town attorney. Even after his colleagues were like, hey, you should raise your rates, he was still like, nope. He, he didn't want to do that. So the couple loved to travel and spend time outdoors, always hiking and exploring new places. And this is what they were doing when the shriveled grape of a human, Gary Hilton, came into contact with them. On October 21st, 2007, the couple left for a hike through Pisgah National Forest, which was about 20 miles from their home. They left their car, their parked maroon Ford Escape, at the Yellow Gap Road near U.S. Route 276. While out on this hike, the couple came across Gary Hilton. He attacked the couple, killing Irene by blunt force trauma and kidnapping John. Gary took John's ATM car and forced him to give him the PIN number so that he could withdraw money. He then took John in his van to the Nantahala National Forest and shot him in the head with a 22 Magnum firearm. On October 22, 2007, at 7.37 p.m., Gary Hilton used the Bryant's ATM card in Ducktown, Tennessee, to withdraw $300. Ducktown was over 100 miles away. Photos from the bank's security cameras show a slender figure wearing a yellow raincoat, but the person's face is obstructed. After not hearing from them for two weeks, family members reported the couple as missing to the Henderson County Sheriff's Office, who promptly launched a search for the Bryants, consisting of more than 30 volunteers, cadaver dogs, and a helicopter. After examining their phone records, it was learned that Irene had attempted to call 911 on the day of her disappearance, but the signal was lost and the call was dropped. On November 10th of 2007, the search party located the body of a woman on the Barnett Branch Trail covered with leaves. The body was sent to the state medical examiner's office in Chapel Hill to perform an autopsy. And three days later, the body was positively identified as that of Irene Bryant, and her cause of death was confirmed to be blunt force trauma. Now, at the time, her husband was still missing, and they wouldn't find John's body until February 3rd of 2008, when a hunter named Mark Waldrop discovered a skull in Nantahala National Forest just off the Forest Service Road known as the Switchbacks. Mark called in authorities and more bones were found. The bones were sent for examination at the medical examiner's office, and a few days later, they were identified as the remains of John Bryant. These poor little cuties, they were just out living their best life, hiking at 80. Like, they they were in better shape at 80 than I am now. 
And they just came into contact with a psychopath at the wrong place at the wrong time. Ugh. Shortly after the murders of John and Irene Bryant, Gary killed again. Cheryl Dunlap was born on November 18th, 1961 in Tallahassee, Florida. She was married and she had two grown children. She was a nurse and a a Sunday school teacher who also did mission work through her church. Just an all around good person, it would seem. Cheryl was last seen alive on December 1st, 2007. She was 46 years old at the time. She spoke to her friend and had plans to have dinner with the friend that night. So to pass time during the day, she went to the Apalachicola National Forest in Tallahassee. She was planning on enjoying the day reading in the forest. She was seen by a couple named Vicki and Michael Shirley at around 1.30 p.m. She was wearing casual clothing and carrying a book. Cheryl never showed up to her friend's house for dinner that night, though. The next day, Cheryl didn't show up for church or Sunday school, and no one could get a hold of her. One of her friends went to her house to check on her, and although she didn't find anything strange, her dog was there, and Cheryl's car was gone. So they called the police. On December 3rd, she was officially reported missing, and on that same day, her car was found on the side of the Crawfordville Highway near the woods. Police searched the car and found her purse, which had no money in it, and all of her credit cards were missing. Another thing that officers noticed was that the tires were flat, and they had been punctured with an item that would later be identified as a freaking bayonet that they found in the woods. Like, what? What is this guy, a Civil War reenactor? There was also a parking ticket on the windshield of the car, because it had been sitting there for so long. Police looked into her bank account records and found that before she went missing on December 1st at around 11 a.m., Cheryl had cashed a check at the drive-thru bank. Then her ATM was her ATM card was used three times for a total of $700 in withdrawals after she had already been missing. There were also two declined transactions after that. Investigators pulled the security camera footage from the ATM and quickly realized that it was not Cheryl who had been taking out the money, but a person who was wearing a blue and white shirt, a hat, glasses, and a mask. But not just like a ski mask or whatever. A freaking mask made out of tape, you guys. Fucking Gary, man. He was... Ridiculous. So, and yes, there will be a picture from the ATM surveillance footage on the blog for you. So, check it out. He was using the correct pin during these withdrawals, too, which is scary. Police were staking out the bank on December 5th to see if he would return to use the card again, but he didn't. Cheryl's body was found by a hunter partially buried under tree branches in Apalachicola National Forest on December 15th, 2007. When she was found, she was missing her hands and her head. Investigators found what they believed to be the remains of her head and hands in a fire pit several miles away from where the rest of her body was found. Unfortunately, they were so burned that they weren't able to be positively identified, but it's believed that they were Cheryl's. She was positively identified using samples from her thigh muscles, 
She had bruising on her back, and her death was estimated to be between December 5th and December 8th. So she had been kept alive for a while after her disappearance. And her head and hands were removed post-mortem as well. Gary was seen by a witness looking through a white Toyota Camry, which was Cheryl's car, on December 1st, which was the day that she was last seen alive. So on December 10th, he was seen wearing the same blue and white shirt in the security footage at a convenience store. He reportedly had a large hunting knife on his belt. And then on December 18th, he was seen at another convenience store and he walked right up to one of the women in the store and said, hey, you look like that girl Cheryl that was missing. It's a shame that she was murdered. Like this dude is bold. And he was about to get even more bold. Around this time, Gary traveled to Georgia, and on January 1st, 2008, he struck again. Meredith Emerson was a vivacious 24-year-old. She was born on June 20th, 1983 in Charleston, North Carolina. She grew up in North Carolina and also in Longmont, Colorado. She attended the University of Georgia with a major in French. She went to France and had hopes of moving there one day to teach English. She had a boyfriend at the time. She lived with a roommate and had a black lab mix named Ella. She loved her dog. One of the pictures, it's a popular picture of her and Ella holding up like a certificate for Ella completing like a training. It was really cute. She was outgoing. She loved to hike and was studying martial arts. She was a blue belt, which was sweet. On New Year's Eve, she had gone out with friends, and on January 1st, 2008, she was supposed to hang out with her boyfriend, but during a phone call, she got kind of annoyed by him, and he was being a little bit snippy. He would later say that he was in a bad mood that day and, you know, felt bad about it later on, but so... Meredith decided to take Ella out for a hike instead on Blood Mountain, which is an aptly named popular hiking trail in Georgia. The weather was perfect that day, so Meredith left in her left her car in the parking lot at Blood Mountain and set off with Ella, but she would never come home. A man named Bill Clausen saw Meredith on the trail going up the mountain. He also saw a man walking with her. And he remembered that when she arrived, she was alone. So this was strange, kind of strange to him. The man that was walking with Meredith was also carrying a baton. Like, what the hell? And later, later on, Bill saw the man again. But this time he was alone and was kind of like trying to avoid him. <laughs> so around that time, another man found some random things on the trail, a dog leash, water bottles, a hair clip, and a police baton, like a collapsible baton. Meredith had left a note for her roommate on their chalkboard that read, quote, taking Ella hiking, hope you had fun. But the next morning, her roommate Julia woke up and noticed that Meredith wasn't home, which was kind of strange. So she called her boyfriend, but there was no answer. And then Meredith's employer called and said that Meredith never showed up for work that day, which was not normal for her. She always showed up for work. Now, immediately, Julia called Meredith's parents, and later that day, she was reported missing. Now, 
I want a group like Meredith's friends if I ever go missing because they were on it. They immediately jumped into action trying to figure out where she was and what happened. So she was an avid hiker. She loved to hike, but they really didn't know where she would have gone because there was a few trails that she liked. They ended up looking at this guide map that Meredith had, which she had marked with some of her favorite hiking trails, and they narrowed it down to Blood Mountain. So they went there, and her boyfriend was the one who found her car at the trailhead. The car was covered in snow because it had snowed that the night before, and the search was on at that point. There were tons of people searching, and authorities were called in. The next morning, they returned to search some more and found out that some of the items that were found and turned in belonged to Meredith. So here's a little bit of the timeline. Meredith arrived at the trail around 1 o'clock p.m., parks her car, and heads to the Blood Mountain Trail. Around 2.30 p.m., Meredith is attacked and subdued by Gary Hilton. So while this is all happening... Police called Meredith's bank and found out that her ATM was being her ATM card was being used by someone who was concealing their face and putting in the wrong PIN number at ATMs. It had been used several times or attempted, but the person wasn't able to get any money out. And this is because Meredith, the genius she was, had been giving out the wrong PIN number to Gary to allow time for police to get to her. And it was later confirmed that she had been kept alive for four days while Gary was trying to get money out of her account. And she just kept giving him the wrong one and sending him to different ATMs. So tips began coming in from people who had seen Meredith at the trail that day. And some of them mentioned a man who had been following her. He was described as an older white male, toothless. He had a dog with him and he drove a white van. The authorities actually received a call from a man who had heard this description, and he's like, um, yeah, that sounds like somebody that um, I used to employ. So he calls it in, and it, his name was John Tabor, this man. He's like, um, yeah, that sounds like Gary Hilton. I've known him for 10 years. He used to carry a police baton. That was like his signature move. And he had a dog named Dandy. John described the van Gary drove and provided the license plate number to police. And how did he know this information? Because John had bought the van for Gary. John also provided another nice little detail about old Gary. He was toothless, not because of his poor dental hygiene, but because he had used a pair of pliers to pull some of his own teeth out. And he claimed he did this because he wanted to look scarier so people wouldn't mess with him. Yeah, I'm going to level with you, Gary. It's not the teeth that's doing it for me. It's the whole face. It's the murdering. It's all of it, okay? So now authorities knew who this stale piece of lettuce was and they put his face out there because they wanted him in custody as soon as possible. They got a call from investigators in Tennessee who claimed that they were investigating the murder of a hiker in Florida named Cheryl Dunlap. There were a lot of similarities between the two cases 
And then they get a call from investigators in North Carolina who were looking into the disappearance of two other hikers, which were Irene and John Bryant. So the red flags are going up everywhere for investigators. There were a lot of connections. On January 4th, 70 miles away, Ella, who is Meredith's dog, walked into a Kroger grocery store in Cumming, Georgia. Gary was making phone calls, asking for money because he couldn't get any money out of Meredith's account. And all of these people that he was calling were reporting the information to police. So he didn't have as many friends as maybe he thought he did. But so police were able to trace his last call to a payphone at a gas station that was across the street from the grocery store that Ella had walked into. Employees confirmed that Gary was there and claimed to see him throwing things out of his van into a dumpster. So at this point, an APB went out for the van. And later that evening, a call came in from a witness claiming that there was a man who matched Gary's description at a car wash washing his van. And the witness was like, yo, you want me to grab this dude or what? (laughs) Police were like, "Uh, yeah. So this witness like literally held on to him until police arrived. So police started looking through the dumpster and in there they found a bag with a black leather wallet with Meredith's ID in it. They found the lavender jacket that she was last seen in covered in dirt and blood, another shirt that was covered in blood, a parking ticket with Gary Hilton's name on it, as well as chains and rope with blood on him. So he just threw every piece of evidence right into one place, right and wrapped it up in a nice little neat bow for investigators. And they literally caught him in the act of cleaning his van. Like, what an idiot. So stay stupid murderers. So he was taken into custody. And this guy is such a douche that he read them his Miranda rights. He's just a cocky creep. But he didn't do a great job of cleaning his van, being that he was caught in the middle of it. Police found evidence of bloodstains on the floor mats as well as the door. So the different departments investigating the different cases that involved Gary Hilton decided to come together and see what they could do. They decided to tell him that the death penalty was off the table for the case in Georgia. This led to him confessing. He admitting he admitted to keeping Meredith alive for four days before murdering her. He told them where her body would be found and she was located. She had been decapitated as well and was buried under some leaves. Gary had to lead investigators to her head because it was located in another spot. And she had also died from blunt force trauma. In January of 2008, he pleaded guilty to the murder of Meredith Emerson. There's a scholarship in her name, a trail named after her, and there was a law enacted called the Meredith Emerson Memorial Privacy Act, which would prevent gruesome crime scene photos from being publicly released. And this was after Hustler magazine reporter Fred Rosen asked for the Meredith Emerson crime scene and autopsy photos as part of an open records request filed with the GBI. Like, no, sir, absolutely not. Gary Hilton went on to stand trial for Cheryl Dunlap's murder in 2011 with a jury returning a guilty verdict and recommending the death sentence. A year later, he pleaded guilty to five counts for the robbery, kidnapping and murder of John and Irene Bryant, and he was sentenced to five consecutive life sentences. 
In addition to the murders of Cheryl Dunlap, Meredith Emerson, and Irene and John Bryant, Gary Hilton has been investigated and remains a suspect in several unsolved murders. And this is according to Wikipedia. On September 7th of 1997, several human bones and personal items were found in Pisgah National Forest scattered near a campground. The decedent was eventually identified as 51-year-old hiker Judy Smith, who was last seen in Philadelphia five months earlier on April 10th, 1997. It has been speculated that she might have been a victim of Gary Hilton, who had left one of his victims in a similar condition near where her body was discovered. 20-year-old Jason Andrew Knapp, a Clemson University student, was last seen by his roommate at their residence in the University Terrace Apartments in South Carolina on April 11th of 1998. His roommate said that Knapp was watching a movie at approximately 10.30 that evening. Authorities found Knapp's white 1990s Chevy Beretta abandoned nine days later on April 21st, 1998. The vehicle was parked at Table Rock State Park in Pickens County, South Carolina. He was declared legally dead in 2018. And due to the similarities to his known other known crimes, Gary Hilton was proposed as a suspect, but he denied any connection to Knapp. And, you know, given that he's confessed to all the other ones, then maybe that's not maybe he didn't do it. Who knows? Up next, hairdresser Patrice Marie Tambor Andres. She was 38. She disappeared from her nail salon, Timbers Trim and Tan, in Cumming, Georgia, on April 15, 2004, between 1137 and 1150 a.m. Her remains were found on December 6, 2005, in Dawson County, Georgia. Gary Hilton was known to be to have been in Forsyth County because he had been stopped for a traffic violation there. In his statements to investigators, Hilton told them that he would usually go to hair salons to ask for money, usually around lunchtime. Investigators were unable to find an alibi for him on the day of Patrice's disappearance. So maybe that was him. 26-year-old Rosanna Miliani was a hiker from Miami, Florida. She was last seen at approximately 12 p.m. at the Ramada Inn Hotel in Cherokee, North Carolina. Miliani called her father from the hotel that day and told him she was going hiking on the Appalachian Trail. A store clerk who read about Miliani's disappearance claimed she sold a backpack to her and an unidentified older white man in his 60s in Bryson City, North Carolina in 2005. Following Gary Hilton's arrest, the store clerk contacted authorities to note the similarities between Hilton and the suspect. And finally, Michael Scott Lewis, who was 27. He was a South Daytona resident who went missing on November 21st, 2007. A few weeks later, on December 6th, his dismembered remains were found by a fisherman in Ormond Beach, packed in black bags, which had been dumped in the Tomoka River. The remains were not immediately connected to Luis, with identification occurring several days later by a lab in California but his head was never located. Authorities have stated that while Hilton remains a suspect in the murder and was in the area at the time, he's not the sole one. Gary Michael Hilton is currently on death row in Florida, where he has held at the Union Correctional Institute. And that is the story of this loser, Gary Hilton, the National Park serial killer. 
Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. The sources will be linked to in the show notes. They're available on the blog. There will also be pictures on the blog. If you haven't checked it out, head over to www.thehauntedcorner.com. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Check out the other episodes of The Haunted Corner available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts with new episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to share your support, head over to Patreon. You'll have access to the exclusive Patreon-only episodes. You'll have access to these episodes in the regular feed early and ad-free, plus a lot more. So head over to patreon.com forward slash The Haunted Corner. If you're enjoying the podcast, please be sure to tell a friend and rate and review wherever you listen because it helps support the show. If you have a case suggestion or a correction to share, please send it to thehauntedcorner at gmail.com or submit it through the website. Until next time, be kind, take care of yourselves, and punch a murderer in the face. We'll see you next time. Bye.